You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Pool party radio. Show King. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. out with my baby can't go wrong cause I'm in right it's for sure not for maybe that I'm all dressed up tonight stepping out with my honey can't be bad feels so good I think at that moment my brother and I became accomplices forever Same old David, huh? You notice how it's Monopoly out there? Remember Boardwalk, Park Place, Marvin Gardens? You just can't go give it to him. He's never going to understand what you're trying to do for him. Not ever. I mean, he doesn't He doesn't have any gratitude. He's got only one thing. That's depression, suspicion, and mistrust. All I need to feel is that you're with me, you know, David? Like we got something solid between us. I'm still here, aren't I? Things are pretty weird around here, you know. standing here, wiping bubble bath off my chest, and you're insulting my people? You're standing there. You sick the cops in on the woman. You got a whole battalion of people here. You got a woman trapped naked in the bathtub, and you're not even selling tickets. I know you're afraid, David. But I don't know what it is that makes you afraid. You want to stay cordial? Don't ever point no weapon at me, understand? Jason's no businessman, can't he understand? He won't listen to my opinion. I think he's an artist. Jason, will you wake up for one minute? 
Will you open your eyes? Open your ears! Okay, okay. The big problem is where to dump me, isn't it? Well, isn't it? How's this? I'll shoot myself, huh? We're in the fun house. How do you know who's really crazy? How do you know? And it's supposed to be you. And stuff. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me, of course, as always, co-host, Mr. Mike White. You know, my mom always said that I had a face for radio. This week, we're talking about Bob Rafelson's 1972 film, The King of Marvin Gardens. The film stars Jack Nicholson and Bruce Dern as brothers, David and Jason, as Dern's Jason is a small-time con man who's working on a big deal and wants to bring in his somewhat depressed brother, David, in order to share in the score. Along the way, we meet a gangster played by Scatman Carruthers and a mother and stepdaughter team played by Ellen Burstyn and Julia Ann Robinson, who pal around with Dern's character. Now, the film is 42 years old as we record this, and we will be getting into some spoilers. If you haven't seen it, go ahead and turn us off and come back after you've seen it. Right now, it's out on DVD and Blu-ray, a fantastic box set from the Criterion Collection. And I also know that The King of Marvin Gardens had been released previously, I believe in VHS, and also on DVD before that beautiful box set. So if you're still with us, okay, good. Mr. Mike White, when was the first time you saw The King of Marvin Gardens, and what did you think? Uh, first time I saw this was a few months ago. I was at the Blue Water Film Festival and was going to be presenting an award to Ellen Burstyn. And I figured, hey, you know what? Need to bone up on some King of Marvin Gardens because I want to do an interview with her while I'm up here. And unfortunately, it didn't work out at the time. She was kind of under the weather, wasn't able to really commit to an interview. But hey, 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 managed to get one with her anyway. And you'll be hearing that a little bit later on in the show. What did you think of the film when you saw it? I loved it. I was really kind of blown away by it. I'd never watched this one before and really didn't know anything about it. It's got such a strange title. I figured it had something to do with Monopoly, but I wasn't really positive on that. And I was really kind of taken by it. It's a quiet film that kind of gets under your skin and I liked the performances a lot, especially Alan Burstyn's performance. But I am a huge Bruce Dern fan, and I love Jack Nicholson before he kind of became the caricature of Jack Nicholson that we see too often these days. Uh, anger management, uh, bucket list, that kind of stuff. So I'm glad to see him in his prime. And, the, you know, I have seen a few other Bob Rafelson uh, films and seen other Rafelson films where Nicholson and him work together, and this is right up there with uh, some of the better ones. As for me, I saw this God, probably years ago. I don't really remember when, but I really revisited the film when I picked up the America Lost and Found, the BBS story box set from Criterion, and went through all the films in there. And there's some interesting ones that are in that set because it's not only Rafelson's films, but we have things such as Easy Rider and Drive, He Said, which is uh, Jack Nicholson's directorial debut, A Safe Place, Henry Jaglum. So there's some interesting mix of, uh, I guess, more acceptable mainstream fare and a little more arty out there kind of projects on that box set. And this one, I have to say, probably doesn't get as much respect as it deserves because most people would go the year before, I believe, and say five easy pieces. 
a year or two before. And that's the one when we talk about Rafelson and Nicholson together, that's the one that people always seem to point to. But I think that this one is as interesting in its own ways and I think uh, merits another look, hence the reason why we're doing it on the show. Yeah, I was really kind of surprised uh, as I was doing some research on this. I didn't look at any of the reviews from the day, but I looked at the reviews from recently and one guy was going through on his blog and looking at all the films in this BBS collection and he kind of saved King of Marvin Gardens for last and really didn't like it at all and just kept drawing all these comparisons between it and Five Easy Pieces and talking about how the plot was getting in the way and that every time things started to get interesting, they would go back into the story and for me, just that wasn't the case. I thought that the plot kind of put these characters into interesting places and gave them a lot of, of good chances to interact because I think these performances is, are really where this movie shines. And in a lot of ways, uh, looking at it, um, the last time I watched it just a week or so ago before we were recording the show, to me it almost feels like a novel. In that, it does. Yeah, it's like the it's not so A, B, C, D, E. It's not so plot point specific. There's a lot of time that's in there where we're allowed to breathe with it. We're allowed to have things kind of move around and and, and take some time with various things. And that's a, an odd idea, I think, for most people who watch modern film. It, it's definitely something, you know, if you and, and we'll talk about his his. Uh, his work later, Bob Rafelson's work. Um, it's definitely something that I think that was very much informed by either European art film or other underground and independent film of the day. Yeah, it definitely felt very novelistic. It was one of those films, there are a few of these films where I watch them and it's like, I really want to read the book that this is based on. And then I'm shocked to go out to IMDb and find there is no book. There wasn't even a short story as far as I know that this was originally based on. So it feels like one of these where Nicholson and Dern and the other actors kind of got together, specifically Nicholson and Dern, and they kind of worked out the backstory to their characters, or maybe this was coming from the writer Jacob Brackman, or maybe from Rafelson, or wherever it came from, you got the feeling that there was this rich life that we're seeing on screen, but even more going on behind the scenes. And I think that that is so important to feel that there's more to the story than we're necessarily getting, because otherwise you get into this world where it's just kind of cardboard cutouts moving around on on film, basically. And with this, I felt like, oh yeah, I'm getting a lot more from these characters, and just the way that they kind of give you little hints more than statements as far as the background and where these people are coming from, what their history is, and the way that this information is kind of parsed out. It's not all just like, okay, in in Act 1, we're going to tell you these five things, and by that time, we're good to go, and now let's you know continue on with our story in Act 2 and 3, the end. He starts in such a way, it's very much enigmatic. The first five minutes, you really have kind of no idea what's going on. It's just a tight close-up of, of Jack Nicholson's face, and he's telling this story. I promised that I would tell you why I never eat fish. When we all moved into my grandfather's house, it somehow fell to me to keep the old man's mind off of things. We would 
play casino over an old card table. He never let me win. One time he put one of those tiny model trains into my hamburger. He was a practical joker. I broke my tooth on it. You don't know who he's telling the story to. You don't know where he's telling the story. He is lit basically almost like half of his face is in complete shadow and darkness and the other half is lit. And then about halfway through the story, this red light starts to flash on the dark side of his face. And he starts looking over somewhere and you can tell that he's kind of losing his concentration a little bit as he's telling this monologue, this kind of Spalding Gray-esque story. And then I, I think there's a pullback or a cut in which we realize he's in a radio station and he's a radio host and he's a basically kind of this like a late night monologist who goes in and, and tells these stories. And just that opening, I mean, that's a very interesting shot. It's a very interesting idea to begin with because there really is no establishing shot, <laughs> you know, and you know, from, from that image, from that first thing, this like five minute solid take that he's going to take you places in this film that won't be, average or what you're expecting and i think that if people watch it and they watch that first five minutes and they can't get sucked in by that then they may as well just shut it off because it isn't going to get any better for them no no it's not i love that opening because it's it, it felt at first like it was maybe he was being questioned by the police or something and then i thought more it's of a um like a therapy session kind of thing and then as it started to go along, I kind of got more the feeling of a man with a microphone, a little talk radio kind of thing. And then finally it was revealed to be that. But I like that I was put into this place where I was a little uncomfortable to start with. And that's kind of par for the course with this film. I did feel a little on edge. And that was one of the things I liked about the story is that I never really knew where we were going to go with this. So it was nice to be surprised at every turn. Who we are introduced to in that shot is Jack Nicholson as David, and he is a sort of a depressive type. He lives with his father, maybe grandfather? I think it's his grandfather because yeah. he tells that story in that monologue about his grandfather dying <laughs> and and choking to death and this whole tale. And when he comes home after this really kind of beautiful opening, every shot in this film is, is just very well done. And the framing, the composition is, is gorgeous. But yeah, he comes home and the old guy starts coughing at him and, uh, uh, to kind of tie in with him choking in the story. And it's like, okay. Yeah. So I figured that that was his, his very much alive grandfather, which kind of puts into perspective that we're not necessarily dealing with the most reliable narrator in this film. His grandfather's there, and he starts having this conversation with him, and we come to find out that the the flashing light, which was interrupting him, and he gets on the um, the engineer at the station before he leaves about, hey, you know, can you just shut the phones off while I'm doing this? It's like three in the morning anyway, so, you know, is if it's really that big a deal, they can just call back later and what he finds out is that his brother is trying to contact him, and he hasn't talked to his brother in several years. That's Jason played by Bruce Stern. 
So there's this whole thing about he's living in Philadelphia. His brother wants him to come out to Atlantic City, and he's got this big plan. He's got this big idea in terms of how he wants to uh, work this real estate deal, and they're going to get this uh, hotel on this island in Hawaii and all of this stuff. But first, he's got to go see this guy and only talk to this guy about this one thing. Lewis. Yes, talk to Lewis. Only talk to Lewis. Don't talk to anyone else. Go to this place first, talk to Lewis, and then Lewis will help us get to where we have to get. And that doesn't necessarily seem to work out all so well. No, it doesn't. You know, the Bruce Stern character, played by anyone else or with a little different spin to it, he could have been so annoying. And he is a little bit annoying in this, but he his character reminded me of a lot of other characters that we're going to see in other films and TV shows. I can't put my finger on any one in particular. He kind of reminded me a little bit of like a, almost like a Ralph Cramden at times, this whole like, like get rich quick kind of scheme thing that he has going on. And he's this scrabbler. He's, he's trying to get ahead in the world by any means necessary, no matter who he kind of has to throw in front of the bus. And so it was interesting to see him in this role and Dern um, for me has kind of become known for these roles where he is this fast talking guy that wants to get ahead in the world this he reminded me a little bit of his performances in like the laughing policeman or smile I think especially the laughing policeman where he is always kind of peppering know what I mean and in as he's talking to people and just this kind of like almost like a salesman type patter that he has. And so he, he was fascinating to watch on screen and just um, my eyes were constantly drawn to him. And I like that he's introduced first as a character off screen, you know, it's a phone call, it's a come to Atlantic city. But when we first meet him, he's in jail and (laughs) Nicholson's character has to go get him out of jail. Same old David, huh? You notice how it's monopoly out there? Remember Boardwalk, Park Place, Marvin Gardens, directly to jail? That's me. Don't pass gold, don't $200. Jason, is there something I should do? Yeah. Give me your pen. Come on now, give me a break. My brother's in town. Yeah, and then um, when he goes to see Louis, or Louis? Louis. When he goes to see Louis, um, there's this whole thing of who Louis is. Is it this guy? Is it that guy? And this kind of unseemly place that Nicholson goes to is is uh, fairly interesting. It's We're kind of thrown into this world of crime fairly early on in here. And it's like, who are these people? What are they up to? And it feels a little mob-esque, but then it seems like the mob is actually these African-American gentlemen. So it's like, who are these people? Do they control Atlantic City? What is the whole story here? And that's one of the things that that I like about the use of Atlantic City. Now, this is in the period before Atlantic City became um, a gambling capital. They hadn't legalized gambling yet, so there's no casinos or anything like that. But there's the whole connection, obviously, with Monopoly – 
the use of the you know name Marvin Gardens in the title and things like that. So it has a particular character, and in a lot of ways, you know, we've talked about other films where the city is used as a character. You know, we talk about uh, Taxi Driver in that way, or uh, maybe La Dolce Vita or uh, Eight and a Half, which you know Rome is sort of a character. And I think in a lot of ways, I've I've never been to Atlantic City. I have these iconic images in my head of what Atlantic City is, of course. It's the boardwalk. It's um, casinos now. But really that boardwalk and everything connected with, with Monopoly. And I like the way that he uses it, but it's used in such a way that at times it, it feels run down like Detroit. <laughs> Yeah, there's some really fascinating images in this. I mean, not just of um, landscapes in Atlantic City, but I, and I like the way they kind of plays things that he's putting on screen um, against some of these images of Atlantic City. So like the shot of um, Dern and... Uh, Nicholson on horseback looking at each other, which is just such a strange framing of them to be talking to each other with these horses' heads almost touching versus them being side by side and talking. Contrapose that with like this huge elephant that's there as part of uh, Atlantic City, this kind of relic, it seems, from another time. I'm curious. Uh, in November, when we talk about the burglar, that is set, at least the, the book is set in Atlantic City. So I'm going to be curious in a few months to tr- uh, kind of compare how the Atlantic City of that is contrasted with the Atlantic City of King of Marvin Gardens, which, again, that's in the 50s. So it's not, it, that's kind of more the heyday before the gambling. And then this is that rundown time, it seems like. And it feels like a ghost town. There's so many interesting things that are happening in Atlantic City, like the scene of the marching band coming down the the boardwalk, and then they just stop playing, and the whole marching band just disperses. And it's like, what the heck just happened there? And like these roving bands of old women on the boardwalk. So it's, it's very fascinating to see not only the people that he populates it with, but yes, this kind of uh, ghost town esque with the uh, way everything just feels completely run down. The other element that gets used in there related to Atlantic city. And it's a little bit further into the film is this sort of riff on miss America because the Miss America pageant always take place in Atlantic City. So there's this whole scene that, to me, this is where I say it, it feels like uh, experimental film or some sort of like European art film, like you were talking about them on horseback, but also this scene where the uh, the young girl, played by Julia Ann Robinson, who is uh, Ellen Burstyn's stepdaughter, and we, we later find out, is supposed to be like Miss America and Jack's on stage doing the introduction. And, and this is really the only time that we get him sort of interacting and kind of smiling and laughing a little bit. Because he's usually pretty, he's pretty depressive and dour throughout the entire film. Miss Hawaii. Yes, indeed. Miss Hawaii. Style and grace and a beautiful face. From our beautiful 50th state of blue, Hawaii. Yes, indeed! No contest! Major discovery! Totally major discovery! She's it! This is my favorite part of the show. Having fun? I'm just having a ball. 
Now, I notice in your biographical sketch that you haven't tap danced since you were nine years old. No, sir. Not really, sir. Ask her an interesting question, lame, and quit milking it for yourself. I see you brought your own rooting section with you. Yes, sir, I did. really is sort of this balancing act between Dern's sort of uh, vivaciousness and personality and everything that he has versus the the character that Nicholson plays as David, who's very low-key. And I was thinking about it, you know, in reference to the time. Is You know, this is 1972, Vietnam's still going on. It's sort of winding down. It's still taking a couple of years. But, but in a lot of ways, I was looking at both of them and I thought, well, maybe they're kind of stand-ins for the two tensions when you think about it during that era. I mean, obviously, but much more iconoclastic in that way, where David, who's the younger brother, is very kind of dour and serious. And he kind of maybe would represent the establishment. Well, Jason, who's Bruce Stern's character, is sort of this dreamer. Maybe he's sort of the hippie character, the anti-establishment of the era, and sort of how the two are kind of uh, sort of at heads with each other. But in a way, the dreamer wants to bring the establishment along, which is the whole reason for him calling up his brother to try and get in on this scam. That's a good point. Then I'm wondering what you would think kind of as this mob background. Is this kind of like the by any means necessary kind of an idea? When you meet the one henchman of Scatman Carruthers, Lewis character, he's kind of dressed almost like a Black Panther <laughs> guy, you know, he is, with, his, yeah. with his trench coat and all of that stuff. And he, he talks in that manner, too. Yeah, Scatman Crothers, it's always good to see him show up. And in this one, only time I've ever seen him credited as Benjamin Scatman Crothers. So it was nice to to see that. That was kind of a, a treat for me. And, you know, though we've seen him here and there, you know, he's in the Detroit 9000 episode. We talked about him when we talked about um, Song of the South. So we've talked. It's it's funny how many times Scatman Crothers has shown up on this show. It's almost like real Don Steele. We're talking about yeah. him without not really talking about him, <laughs> just by luck. We- which is great, you know, two amazing set of pipes, too. I mean, I, I kind of grew up on Hong Kong Fui, so Scatman Crothers was definitely a, a part of my childhood. And then to see him brutally murdered in The Shining always kind of uh, took me aback a little bit. Yeah, and that's really where we see, you know, him and Jack again, a good uh, eight, almost nine years later with The Shining. And it's interesting that they have this scene later in the film where they're talking with each other across the table where David goes to see Lewis and talk to him about this whole plan that his brother has and sort of like, who are you and what is this? And are you helping us? Are you not helping us? Like, I like explain what this whole deal is. And it's kind of a fascinating little scene with the two of them. That scene is crucial. Yeah. Just that really helps put things in a lot of perspective because as we go along, we kind of, you know, I've, I've mentioned that, Jack Nicholson's character, David, is not necessarily a reliable narrator. And then he comes into contact with his brother, Jason, who is not a reliable storyteller either. He is just basically telling everybody what they want to hear. Um, I'm thinking of the scene where he and uh, John P. Ryan, uh, Surtees, the guy from the hotel, they have this whole dialogue and Dern's trying to get uh, his room paid for and all this kind of stuff. And it's just we come to learn not to trust what Dern is necessarily telling us. And Lewis seems to be kind of the voice of reason, which is funny because he's 
you know, the criminal element and the criminal in this film is the most reliable person that we have. I don't know what that says about us. <laughs> well, not only that, we talk about like little scams. I mean, he's not, Dern's character is not able to pull off the big scam. No. But the one that I like in there, and, and this is where I say it's kind of a novel because it's a scene that if you were doing it plot wise, it adds character, but it really doesn't drive the plot forward. And what that one is is where they go to the auction, and it appears oh, that they're auditioning auctioneers for some reason. And they're sitting in the audience, and a series of two, three different people get up there, and they start giving like their best auctioning, and they're trying to auction off this stuff. And one of which makes me laugh because the guy goes, as you can tell, I'm Scottish. And he doesn't have a Scottish accent by any means at all. Which just no, which is great. <laughs> which just makes me laugh. But um, there's this uh, whole thing where Dern's kind of looking around, and he's like, "How can I get people in here? How can I get people in here?" And he sees this group of old ladies walking down the boardwalk, and he runs out there and steals their purse. And the one of them, he steals the old lady's purse, and then they come running after him. And then he's able to use that to turn them on to buy stuff in the shop. And I know that none of you expects for me to give you something for nothing, but I am prepared. To give you something for next to nothing. Now you see what we have here today? What do you select? The radio. Magda! Clock radio. I knew it. Sophisticated taste from Magda. The woman is going for a 2850 item here. Now for you, Magda, 75 cents. Three quarters in my hand and you're walking out with a clock radio. You give me that radio for 75 cents? Cash on. What else does she have to buy? I got a clock radio here going for six bits. It's going once. It's going twice. I- I'd like to hear it play a minute. It's only fair. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And sells it for pittance, which I love. And I love the one who asks if the radio works, and he just picks it up and smashes it. <laughs> you know, it's like, who cares? You know, you, we we were giving you this radio for so low of a price, and now you're asking it if it works. Well, now it doesn't. And just this whole thing where this is kind of where Nicholson seems to kind of come over to his side a whole lot in this. And, and there is this whole idea that you were talking about, uh, the Jason pulling David into his camp. And this is definitely one of those scenes where they kind of gang up a little bit on the guy who was running the shop and start talking about what a great thing this is for the shop, because now these old ladies are going to go out and tell all their friends about all these great bargains that they got. And he'll have to fight away all the, the, the sales that he's going to have the next day, but you got to, you know, give it away at first and then this will come in. And really you get to see, you know, David kind of getting into this and going for it. So it's, it's funny to see how he changes or at least seems to change though. You know, it's not necessarily going to be, it's not going to stick. So it's, it's fun to see the way that he kind of moves more towards the Dern as it goes along. And the thing is, is that you get the idea that he's not a native there. You get that Dern's character is a native. He can do this. It's just right off the top of his head. It's just the way he processes the world. He doesn't have to think about it. For Nicholson's character, he really has to work at it. He's not a native. He doesn't belong there. And he's trying to kind of, you know, fake it till you make it, but he can't quite stay on the path. He kind of (laughs) goes there and then falls off and, you know, and he seems to be having fun with it because he can understand. I, I think that we get the idea that he can understand why his brother likes it so much because it's fun. 
you know, to do this kind of stuff. Even though there's part of him, I'm sure, that is saying, even though he doesn't necessarily say it out loud, I don't think, um, that maybe this is the right thing to be doing. Well, not only is it fun, but, you know, uh, Jason's got two very pretty girls hanging around with them the entire time. And as we go along, David starts to fall for Jessica, the Julianne Robinson character. And so it's yet another kind of thing that um, Jason can kind of hang out there, you know, a little carrot for his brother, like, Hey, come along with me. I'm promising you paradise. And, you know, I've got these pretty girls to go with it too. So that. It also adds a lot of tension to the story because for the longest time, I wasn't even sure how Sally and Jessica, how they were related, if they were related, how what their relationship was, what Dern's relationship was to them. So it's, it's more of this kind of I'm trying to figure out this movie as it goes along, which is another great thing about it. And, you know, I can tell that, that David is falling for Jessica and it's like, when is this kind of going to come to a head? And I think when it does, it's definitely an unexpected head for me. And that's the thing that I like about it because you're left guessing, you know, because for the longest time I'm like, Oh, maybe he's an older sister. Maybe that Ellen Burson's older sister. Okay. Maybe they're mother and daughter, but there's like a real intimacy with them that almost, I, I maybe an implied sexuality between them to which I go, eh, I don't think incest. No. Um, and then there's a line in there about my father left that kind of like, I don't necessarily see, I, I can't necessarily remember one of them coming out and saying, she's my stepmom or my stepdaughter. We learn it through clues. We don't get it just handed to us. And it, it's like that throughout this entire film. And that's, once again, why I keep saying that this movie reminds me of a novel in that way. Because not everything is going to be given to you in the first chapter. It's like little bits are just kind of rolled out from time to time. Right. It's like we know that David is a damaged character. But how damaged is he? When did that happen? Why is he so different from his brother? What was their relationship like when they were growing up? And does that have some sort of impact on how they are now? So there are all these great questions that we're slowly getting some information about as we go through. And sometimes we get the full story. Sometimes we just get pieces. But what I like is that we don't come to this kind of screeching halt to say, let me tell you what happened on Maple Street. And just this flashback to, you know, the kids at, at, when they're 12 years old we see this horrible incident or whatever what i like too is that we have learned immediately in this film sorry to to jump all the way back to the beginning but we've learned that when there are easy answers when there are really complete beginning middle end stories that we shouldn't trust them so as the narr narrative moves along when we get these little drips and drabs we glom onto them because it's like maybe this is the truth and we're trying to find what the truth is and it's kind of nice it's almost like we have a mystery film hidden within a drama because we want to know what makes these characters tick yeah, exactly. I mean, if we want to say that there is, um, we often talk about on here about adaptations of books into film. And specifically, we were talking about Manhunter, and you were talking about like the essence of Red Dragon, not necessarily the plot. If you want to look at the monologues, because there's two of them in the film, but it's specifically the first one that kind of helps you understand this brother dynamic, it's kind of in there, in that it's it's not an it's not a true story because obviously the grandfather's still alive he didn't choke to death 
but there's this whole thing about him going along with his brother to allow his grandfather to choke. It's about him going along with his brother to do this thing. And I don't necessarily think I got it the first time when I was listening to it, that I realized that there was that implication in what he was saying. It was more sort of, he's telling you the story and where the hell is he? Those were like the two. It was more where the hell is he for me than what exactly he was saying. I was trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And when you go back and you watch it again and you listen to what he's saying, you start to understand the dynamic, even though it's couched in a piece of fiction. There are so many nice moments in this film where we do feel like we're kind of on even footing, or at least this is my interpretation of how I felt with this movie. I feel like I'm on rocky footing and then things start to even out and I feel like I'm kind of understanding what's going on with the film. And then the scene will change and all of a sudden I'm thrown into either another location or another scene is is happening and it's just like, what? And I have to start to really start to figure it out again. You know, I'm thinking of like when they cut to that auditorium where Jessica is tap dancing and it's like, where are we? What is going on? And then we again get the slow room reveal of the information around her and everything or another one is when we cut and we see um sally between these two japanese businessmen who are stuffing their faces with lobster and it's just like what the hell is going on and why are these guys here and it's nice that we kind of eventually figure out how they play into the plot and everything but you know, it, it was just like every at every turn, it feels like we're given new stuff that we have to figure out, and I like that about this a lot. Not only that, but there are scenes that take place or motivations that take place for the characters, and and I'm thinking of Sally Ellen Burstyn's character in here, in which she gathers up all of her uh, cosmetics and decides to like bury them in the sand <laughs> at the beach and cut off her hair and all of this stuff. And that's not typical of mainstream American film. That to me felt like Antonioni or, you know, French do totally Antonioni. Yes. You know, yeah. I, I would say that this film feels like Antonioni, but filtered it through a little bit of a sensibility of what Godard said that all he needed to do to make a film was have, uh, you know, two boys, a girl, and a gun. And in this one, he's got two boys, two girls, and a gun. So <laughs> it's um, it, it's just adding that little extra thing. But it really does have this sort of feel of Antonioni, I would say, because it's very – it's contemplative at times. Uh, the camera doesn't move a lot. It just kind of sits there. No, it definitely felt – very European, and which is kind of bespeaks the the era in which this was made. I mean, 1972, we're right there, you know, in this golden age of independent films and um, smaller uh, American movies that are being bankrolled. That you know, ten years prior, five years prior, probably wouldn't have been. And a lot of it goes thanks to Easy Rider. And I know we'll talk more about that after we do the jump. So we, we get on through, and the big reveal, the, the spoiler, if you haven't watched the film, is going to happen now, in which um, they're arguing back and forth. They're in the hotel room. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do next. 
and Sally Ellen Burstyn's character is going back and forth between the two brothers and having this conversation. She is the loaded gun at this point. And what I like is that we've had these little moments of her being slightly off. And at first, I can kind of attribute it to her being a little bit older of these two women and that more attention is being paid to the younger woman. Again, I still wasn't sure what their relationship was. And then as I find out what it is, then it kind of becomes even more painful for me to see how they are paying more attention to the younger woman, to the stepdaughter than they are to her. And then she has that little bit of a break where she, you know, buries all of her stuff, cuts off all of her hair, which is just, you know, this huge exclamation point as far as like, there is something definitely wrong with this character, but she kind of brings it together a little bit. And then we get to see, you know, she, like I said, she is the gun in the room. And she basically just loses it as this gun is being kind of passed back and forth from Bruce Dern to Nicholson's character. And then she grabs it and just, bam, shoots down Jason. How's this? I'll shoot myself, huh? Then the three of you can run off to the South Sea Islands together. How's that? Well, how's this? You just stop acting crazy for a minute, huh? You want me to have to beg you? Is that it? Don't be rigid, Jason. That's a perfectly I good solution. I am not being rigid, sweetheart. I'm simply telling you, get your ass into the bedroom or I'll shoot you myself. Now, we've both had a belly full of you. How's this? I'll shoot your brother David and then I'll go to the gas chamber and you can run off with Jessica, which is what you've been wanting to do for a long time. Just give me the gun. Isn't it, Jason? Just give me the gun. Isn't it, Jason? Now, let me tell you what's number one with me. You want to really know? It's my brother. Now, for 30 years, David and I have been trying to get together on something. We finally have an opportunity. We are very close. And if you think for one second that you're going to chase him back to Philly with all the scene you're putting on here, and then it's going to be Jessica and you and me playing ukuleles forever in the sand, forget it. No, ma'am. Never. So get a grip on yourself. You! Wait a minute! Just a minute, you! I'll shoot you, and then your little brother David can run off with my Jesse and live happily ever after. He'll probably put a medal on me. What's going on? Your mother's gonna murder one of us. So far, the only one she hasn't nominated is you. I can see it right now. Matron slays three in seashore love nest. Headline material. What's so amazing about that to me is not only how that scene plays out and then continues a little bit as she heads to the bathroom to try and turn the water off and the shower and the water won't turn off and and all of this is just how fast it happens. It's, It's not dwelled upon. It is very realistic in terms of how violence happens. It just escalates and then bam, it's done and then it's over. Everyone's kind of in a state of shock except she's gone. She's kind of out of it. David and Jesse are just sort of like left to deal with the aftermath because Sally's kind of out of it now. Yeah, I've seen this movie probably about five times now, and every time that happens, even though I know it's going to happen, it still shocks me. And I think it is because of the speed with which it happens, the way that it escalates, the rhythm of the scene I think is crucial with that too. And it's this whole scene where it's almost like they're trying to write their happy ending. And how is that going to be? And it feels almost like as they're talking about this, you know, who's going to get the girl, basically, who's going to go off with who and who's going to die. And there's this whole thing where they are giving these different scenarios. And then Ellen, um, Sally is the one that 
takes the bull by the horns and makes something happen. And it's shot all in pretty wide medium shots, which I think in the hands of a lesser director, a younger director probably would have gone, okay, close up on the hands where the gun is. It would have followed that more. It would have tried to build tension through where the gun's being passed around. And instead it doesn't. It just plays it in wides, and then when it happens, you're just like, where did she pick the gun up from? Like, I, I saw it being passed around, but I don't remember exactly where she got her hands on it. And then it just, it's over as soon as it happens. You know, it's such a, a testament to just how strong these performances are in this film. Just, there are so many things that could have been played out in shorter shots, closer shots, but that we can have all of these actors in one scene where we're seeing all of them at once, you know, really kind of speaks to the way that they have this nailed down, the way that their rehearsals have been, and just the caliber of their performances. And I have to give uh, a lot of credit to Julianne Robinson, who at first I thought was Sandy Dennis. Um, so there's a little bit of a resemblance there, and I guess this kind of a little bit of like a baby girl type voice. Um, and then finally I realized, no, that's not her, but why have I? Why do I not recognize this person, especially who's there with these, you know, three Oscar winning or nominated actors here? And who is this person? And then only to find that she had only ever done this was her her big break. This was her first big film. She had played in basically an extra in another film. And then sadly, she died just a few years later. But it's like she had something going on here if she can hold her own with this caliber of cast that is surrounding her and pushing her yeah it's amazing i mean it really is sad to to see her in this and the fact that she did you know die a few years later and i think when she was in this she was only in her early 20s so i think she died when she was about 25 which is you know to be able to do such an amazing role as so young and sadly not to be able to you know be around to do more work because you know, just based on this alone, I would say, you know, she probably could have had a nice career. Yeah, from what I understand, she got cancer shortly thereafter, and that was it. You know, just kind of had, fought a losing battle afterwards. So it is a, a tragedy. You know, we've got tragedy both in the movie and then outside of it. So to, to know that, you know, she was kind of doomed as I'm watching this, it, it casts a, a little bit of a pallor over the rest of the film. And then the film kind of ends in a way in a bookend where after the shooting, David goes back to Philadelphia. We don't see him, you know, get on the train and look out the window and all that stuff, but we, he's back behind the mic again. The, the, the one thing that you think about with the two monologues that basically bookend the film is the first one I wrote down is very cold. It's dark and it's very cool in terms of its emotion, in terms of how he presents it. Well, the last one is very hot. It's well lit and it's very emotional. He's like kind of Nicholson's character is, you know, very distraught as he's telling this story. How do you know who's really crazy? How do you know it's supposed to be you? It stops it right now. <laughs> you don't know how to stop it. Well, it's, I was wondering how they could have ended this and I don't know if they necessarily could have ended it any different and it made a lot of sense for me to see him back in that chair back in that booth 
it's interesting to see how he tries to record stories as we're going through the film very unsuccessfully. And so he's reminding us a little bit as we go through this that he is this um, I believe Jessica calls him an artist and, you know, telling these stories and everything. So it was nice to see him back in that booth. But at the same time, I was saddened a little bit because he seems to be kind of back where he started from. But to your point, he's a changed man. He is not the same David that we saw at the beginning, even though he's back in the same place. But I think he's even more broken now than he was before since he doesn't have his brother anymore. And really sort of, I would say, the coda or the final idea. It, it doesn't end with, with that final monologue. It ends with him going back home again to his grandfather. And his grandfather just happens to be in like the living room or wherever they are in, in their apartment or townhouse or wherever they live. And he's watching an old home movie. We're led to believe that the home movie is the two brothers playing on the beach as little boys. And it basically just ends with him saying goodnight to the old man. He opens the door where the film is projected and goes back upstairs to, I guess, go to bed. And the film just kind of rolls out on the back of the door. It's a very kind of uh, melancholy kind of quote, uh, coda to this film in a lot of ways. Again, it, it I can't necessarily see it any ending any other way and i know that that kind of sounds a little bit like a cop-out but it just it just feels so right it feels like we've taken this journey and that this is the point to kind of look back a little bit and it luckily it didn't feel really schmaltzy because i think it could have like had they put in a different score or something you know and this whole idea of like oh you know my brother i'm so torn for him he almost seems slightly ambivalent like he might have seen Jason's end before this, you know, because Jason seems like he was kind of playing fast and loose with his entire life. So I'm wondering if David had this, you know, if, if this was kind of the sadness that he was living with before, and it was just kind of the fulfillment of that by the end. If you think about it once again, you know, let's bring it back to this idea of symbolism of the two characters. By 1972, like I said, Vietnam had dragged on. The war wasn't going to end. Flower power and the hippie movement didn't didn't kill it off like it wanted to. The establishment was still there. When I look at that ending and I sort of filter it through this idea that maybe they're you know representatives or iconoclastic or I don't know exactly how you want to say it of that you know both ends of the spectrum in that era. Who's left to survive? Well, the establishment's left to survive, but it's left to survive contemplating. The loss. Right. Yeah, you ever get the feeling you've been cheated. Exactly. All right, we are going to take a break and play an interview with actress Ellen Burstyn after these important messages. The stories you need to know. Woman run down after cat urinates on computer. With the analysis and insight you've come to expect. Fucking feminists. With their, you can't come on me if you're a stranger and didn't ask making sense out of a confusing world. It's a completely random bag of crap. Monica Humberg and her team bring you the information. It is eyeball sex. It's just eyeball socket sex. You know you can't live without. Dazed and Convicted, the podcast at dazedandconvicted.com.
All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh-huh. us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. <laughs> People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ah. Uh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve... Can be deadly weapons and body counts. Body count: the mathematics of murder and menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know, it's messed up, right? like growing up in Detroit when you were young? It wasn't like it is now. I mean, I lived on the street with big elm trees and it's a quiet neighborhood and played in the street and all the kids gathered in the street and played until it got dark. You know, it was safe um, and thriving. And uh, it was just being integrated, you know. In our elementary school at Brady, we was Brady, yeah, at Brady we had the first um, African American student, and uh, that was quite a novelty. And then slowly it became more integrated. You know, it was pretty where I lived. I mean, I lived on Hazelwood and Dexter, and I have such fond memories of walking down. Hazelwood from the Dexter bus stop and that arch of elm trees that met over the street. It was like a cave. And the elm trees, of course, have all died from the blight. You know, it it wasn't a threatening atmosphere at all. It was very uh, sort of middle-class families, you know.
Now, I know you were back last year. Did you, have you been back to the area where you grew up? I went back in 1970. I went back to the house, and um, this street had all been sold to African-American families by then, and I was standing looking at the house, and there was a maple tree that was taller than the house that wasn't there when I lived there, so I could see just how many years had gone by by looking at that maple tree, and a, a man came out and looked at me sort of quizzically because I... There weren't too many white faces in the neighborhood. And I said, I grew up in this house. He said, is that right? And I said, yeah. He said, would you like to come in and look at it? And I said, yes, I'd love to. And I came in and I walked through the house. And, of course, I had that experience that so many people have when they go back to their childhood home of seeing it as a miniature of what they remember because it was so much bigger in my mind and I was smaller um, but it was uh, it was still a very nice neighborhood, you know. It had um, changed from a white neighborhood to a black neighborhood since I'd been there, but it still had the same quality. So, when looking back at your career, where does the King of Marvin Gardens kind of fit in for you? It was after the last picture show. I can't remember if I did. I think I might have done Alex in Wonderland and Harry and Tonto for Paul Masursky. It came right around in there. Uh, and, uh, and so it was a pretty early film. I can't remember if it came after Alice or before. I think it was before Alice. Yeah. Um, and I was a friend of Bob Rafelson's. And I knew both Jack and Bruce socially. We were all kind of a circle at that point of uh, up-and-coming film people. And we hung out together. But it was the first time I worked with him, so it was quite exciting. Bob was, a, was a, an old friend. He and his, his wife, Toby, was, Toby was one of my closest friends in Hollywood at that time. What was that shoot like? I thought I should tell you, I don't know if you know this, that originally Jack, uh, Jack and Bruce were going to play each other's parts. Do you know that? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, one day at rehearsal at Bob's house, we read through it and played the scenes. And then Bob said, would you switch parts for a minute? Let me see what that's like. And so they did. And... Uh, he said, I really like that better. And they agreed because they were both parts that they weren't usually cast in, especially Jack to be cast as, as such an introvert and um, quiet guy, you know, sort of shy. That's not his, the usual Jack Nicholson role. So he was quite excited um, to play that part. And of course, Bruce got to be the um, the dominant brother, you know, and that was fun for him. And then we went to Atlantic City to shoot with um, young Julie Robinson, who is such an amazing creature, young girl, young beauty. And we were all in the same hotel. Julie and I actually had connecting rooms. And, you know, when you go away on a shoot, you sort of leave your life behind. And it becomes very uh, 
intense, the relationships. Uh, so we all got very close during that filming. Your performance in that is just so, it's it's just captivating the way that you kind of turn on a dime at times. I have to ask about the whole haircutting scene. What was that like? For one thing, I decided uh, to really cut my hair so I could experience that. I always like to do things for real if I can and not fake them because I think there's uh, just more power in the real experience. It was strange, you know, being out in the beach and that and building the fire and getting into that state, you know, that slightly mad state. I, I remember a, a strange experience when I was burying the mascara. Do you remember that? Right after the fire. Um, usually when I'm on stage uh, in a live performance, I make contact with the audience. I can feel them. And um, there's a kind of relationship, a connection with the audience that you generally don't feel when you're filming. And for some reason, I don't remember, it occurred to me in the middle of that scene while I was bearing the mascara, I suddenly became aware of the future audience through the lens of the camera. It was like I could time travel into the future through the lens of the camera and make that same kind of contact that I do on stage with the audience and feel feel the audience's connection to what was happening. And it was interesting for me when I finally sat in a theater and watched the film. So I was a member of the audience and I could feel the other end of that experience that I felt while I was shooting. This is slightly mad feelings, you know, that just a little on the border of, like, quite out of the reality. You know, you're into another whole dimension, sort of. And I think that worked for the scene. It's one of those things, you know, usually when you're acting, you have some idea of where you're going to go in your mind to fulfill the scene. And then, and you usually do that. But then sometimes an idea comes up during the filming that has its own effect on you, its own usability and, and uh, its own reality. And I just, that was one of them where I just followed that thread kind of through the lens out to that future theater. And it, it's a way of splitting off from the, the reality you're in. And uh, that's where she was at that time. She was, she was split. She was splitting off from herself. Sitting in the audience and watching yourself like that and having had that projection into the future, what, what was the reaction from the audience? Was it what you thought it was going to be? Yeah. Yeah. They were very, they were very connected. They were very into what was happening. They were, um, empathically feeling what I was feeling at the time. How did the movie go over when it was released? The critics hated it. 
um, they panned it. It was um, it was Bob Rafelson's second film after Five Easy Pieces that they had praised and made him a star. And then they loved to knock them down afterwards. After they set him up, they loved to knock them down. And they did. And I remember reading the Times Review, which was just so nasty. And at the top of the page, there was a review for another film. I don't remember which one now, but it was a, a rave. And it had the line in it, the movie doesn't try for anything, and it succeeds on its own terms. And, and they were panning us for trying something, and in their eyes, failing to realize it. And it was just so dumb and wrong. And now all these years later, people have discovered the film and it's a film classic and one of Jack's greatest performances and all that stuff that they wouldn't give to us when it first opened. We are back. Thanks again to Miss Burston for taking the time to talk to us. You can find out more about her work over at our website, projection-booth.com. Yeah, it was a real pleasure being able to talk to her again. I'm not sure if Ellen remembered who I was. I would not be sad if she didn't, since we had only met for just a, a little bit at the Blue Water Film Festival. It was a lot of fun hanging out with her there. Like I said, she was a little bit under the weather, so I felt kind of bad. Um, there are a lot of times where we were just kind of peppering her with questions about things. But she is so freaking busy, it's crazy. Like After she left the Blue Water, she was on her way to do three different things. She was doing the Flowers in the Attic TV movie, which they've already made a uh, second one of those, Petals in the Wind or whatever it is. And then she was doing the Christopher Nolan movie, Interstellar, that is going to be out, what is that, next year or later on? November of this year, I think. And she was doing something else, and it's like she's constantly moving, constantly busy, and she was taking the time to answer stupid questions from us. Like, um, I had read that she gets mistaken for Louise Fletcher all the time, which I don't necessarily see. I don't know. Do you see a resemblance between her and Louise Fletcher? I think that both of them were well-known actresses in the 70s, and they get confused between, you know, it's, it's obvious people thought that she was in Cuckoo's Nest. Right. Yeah. Which apparently she was actually up for the role in Cuckoo's Nest. And she's kind of, she said to me that she was a little sad that she didn't take it because Louise Fletcher ended up getting the Oscar. And she's like, could have that could that have been my Oscar? <laughs> it's like, Ellen, how many Oscars do you need? But um, apparently she didn't want to do Cuckoo's Nest because her husband at the time had a lot of uh, mental illness um, problems and she was going to psych units all the time. So to play Nurse Ratchet would have just been, she's like, I spent too much you know, of my real life in psych units. I did not want to play a character in a movie that was confined, you know, on the psych unit. So, but it was hilarious when I posted that I was talking to Ellen, um, our friend, Mike Sullivan, 
<laughs> wrote and said, I always get her mixed up with Louise Fletcher. I'm like, okay, I guess that is a thing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I guess so. I I mean, they're a, I would say they're probably similar age. Um, they kind of look similar, but they're not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've got my own actors that I always screw up, so I can't blame anybody for, for mixing those two up. But she did say that people, when they come up and, and uh, do the thing of, you know, I loved you in Cuckoo's Nests and everything, she'll sign Louise Fletcher's name to the autograph, and that Louise Fletcher does the same thing when people come up and say, you know, I loved you in The Exorcist, or Alice doesn't live here anymore. So they've had this understanding for years that people screw them up, so they sign each other's autographs, which I found to be very nice. That's hilarious. I Like, <laughs> like the one that I always liked, it's in a movie about people not understanding that they weren't in that is in Being John Malkovich, where people keep saying, I loved you in that Jewel Thief movie. You're so good in that. I was, Yeah, I was never in Jewel Thief movie. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> it must be, you know, I, I guess they just decided to stop fighting it after almost 40 years. Yeah, yeah. So that's probably for the best. <laughs> so this week we're talking about The King of Marvin Gardens, and it was one of the last of the BBS films. And uh, let's kind of talk about Bob Rafelson and his impact on American independent film beginning in the late 60s. Now, first I want to say that Bob Rafelson is one of my neighbors. He actually lives up the street from where I live here in Aspen. And uh, I tried to contact him to get him to come on the show, but sadly um, couldn't get him to do it. I didn't hear from him. So I guess probably he's busy or maybe he's traveling. People live here, you know, a couple of months out of the year. Even though they live here, they may not be full-time residents. So I'm just going to put it down on that. Maybe I can get them at some later date. But I did have a chance to talk to him several times since I've been here because last summer, before the Wheeler Opera House uh, converted to digital, one of the last 70-millimeter films that they showed at the Wheeler Opera House was Bob Rafelson's Mountains of the Moon, which is an epic film that he did in around 90, I believe. And it's about the uh, quest of the British. There was two guys who worked on this to find the source of the Nile. And uh, it's an amazing, amazing film. He showed it there, and he was interviewed about it afterward on stage. And I got to go up and say hi to him and introduce myself and was trying to kind of grease the wheels to get him on the projection booth, but it didn't work out. But I did uh, get to have a nice conversation with him about the Criterion box set. And he was just like, oh, yeah, he goes, they did such an amazing job. He goes, it's so nice. He goes, it was such an honor for them to put that whole box together. He goes, it's just um, – he goes, it was just such an honor to to have that. It's so well done. So they, for me, worth your money is the uh, America Lost and Found, the BBS story box set. And um, I think it's only one of the few places where you can get Drive, he said, in a safe place, which may not be uh, the best film that you're going to see out of that box set. But it's very interesting to watch in terms of it being uh, Nicholson's uh, directorial debut and also, I believe, Henry Jaglum's directorial debut. So it's kind of fascinating in a way how he was sort of, in a lot of ways, the catalyst for a lot of these things that came out. When you look at this box set, I mean, Head, which we have done on the show before, Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, Drive, He Said, A Safe Place, Last Picture Show, and King of Marvin Gardens, all of that done between basically 1968 and 1972. And the one thing that I never realized until I got this box set was in one of the documentaries, they were saying, if it wasn't for the monkeys, New Hollywood may not have happened. 
or at least not have happened in the way that it did, meaning that it was the money from the monkeys doing so well that made it possible for Easy Rider to get made, and a lot of people see Easy Rider as the beginning of American independent cinema and the quote-unquote new Hollywood. Yeah, I love that moment in Head where you see Nicholson and Hopper show up and start talking to Rafelson, and it's just like, the first time I saw that, I had seen you know Easy Rider. I don't know how many dozens of times, and to see those guys show up and basically, you know, Hopper's dressed almost exactly like you know the Billy character from Easy Rider. And it's just like, what the hell are these guys doing here? What's going on? I had no idea of the connection or anything. And uh, finally, it was like I looked into it, and it was kind of really you know took the blinders off for me. It was just like, wow, this. You know, was a, a movement, and here's how all this stuff was connected. At that point, having seen Nicholson in Easy Rider, but then kind of growing up with him, um, you know, doing like uh, Witches of Eastwick and these kind of things, it was very interesting for me to learn who Jack Nicholson was before he was Jack Nicholson, before he was the guy that sits uh, at the front row at the Oscars every year, who's there at the Laker games, these kind of things. And to realize just what an important figure he is. I mean, we talked a lot about him uh, and his influence and what he had done when he worked with Monty Hellman when we did Flight to Fury. And so it's, it's interesting to see how much of an influence Nicholson had on this being able to kind of come from the Corman school into this other world. And he had so much influence on all this stuff. So between him and Rafelson and all these other young filmmakers, just, it was like this catalyst going on. And it's great what you say, as far as the monkeys being able to provide the bankroll for this whole new Hollywood movement. And yeah, I, I don't see necessarily even, you know, uh, you know, Jaws and Star Wars and these kind of things happening the same way had this train not left the station from the last um, stop in Clarksville, you know? Well, you know, the whole thing when we talk about New Hollywood, to my mind, it comes out of two places. It comes out of the Corman School, which Nicholson was a part of before he hooked up with Rafelson and, and wrote head with him and, and did all these, you know, Five Easy Pieces and King of Marvin Gardens and drive he said and all this stuff with him bbs and it is sort of rafelson pushing this out and being able to make you know to, to give the money so that easy rider could be made and getting hollywood to back that and then what creative freedom came out of that because as we know from the head episode and if you read anything about head it was a miserable flop because nobody it was and it, truly an experimental film and I I watched it not being a Monkees fan. Like I had watched reruns of the Monkees when I was a kid, and I just thought they were just kind of cartoony and stupid. But when I watched Head, I was completely blown away. I was like, this is incredible. I'm like, <laughs> that anyone would make this because it's so kind of out there and um, experimental and cynical. It has this real dark tone at times. And then – to be able to, like I said, parlay that monkey money into Easy Rider and just sort of watch it unfold over basically kind of four years, three to four years, where we talk about this box set, and to have those things like Last Picture Show and what Last Picture Show means, you know, for Peter Bogdanovich. And he's another one that came out of the Corman School. So it's when we look out and say, okay, what was the biggest influence in the cinema that we have today? It is Roger Corman. 
end, end of discussion in terms of American film. I mean, because of everybody that went through there who worked with him and went on to have their own careers. And to be honest, the films like Transformers, these big giant sci-fi films, the Roger Corman films with $100 million, $200 million budgets. So basically everybody's been either you know, helped along by Corman or they've ripped him off in order to make all this money. But I, I think really an important part of where this European art sensibility comes in into the 1970s film is through BBS. It comes in through Rafelson. It comes in through the experimentation with Head and Easy Rider and, and all these films that are in this box set. And I, I think that without that, you wouldn't have had you know both ends of that sensibility. You wouldn't have you know you can have Corman and it'll just all be you know exploitation <laughs> and and cheapo film, or you can have this really arty sensibility, which at times I think Rafelson really brings out, especially in these films. And it is that blending of those two that I think really is what established for me, I think, one of the greatest periods in, in American film. I've always been fascinated by, the, by this whole idea of cycles, you know, and when things really begin to influence each other. And when you think about, like, even stepping back like 10 years prior to BBS and seeing what the French New Wave was doing and the uh, Italian neorealists and all of these different movements that are going on in European cinema and then how they influenced um you know BBS or Bonnie and Clyde or some of these you know very kind of groundbreaking films and film movements that are happening in the US that's kind of you know us taking from France who had taken or in Italy and Germany and all these different cinemas and them kind of reflecting back what they had seen when they were studying American cinema. And it's just this whole way that we kind of, you know, it's this snake eating its own tail as far as how these waves are coming through and what we're seeing, you know, it's like, um, and then you get kind of the synchronicity we were talking about with Last of Silence, how Alan Barron was doing a lot of similar things to what was happening in Europe, even though he claims that he hadn't seen Breathless. They were coming out at the same time. So it's like, how is this stuff occurring at the same time how does this synchronicity happen is it just in the zeitgeist and it's kind of a nice thing to see the way that we can you know like that 70s cinema was so influenced by european cinema which was influenced by american cinema and on and on and on back through the ages and it's you know it's only a hundred some year old medium but to see where these movements come in is pretty interesting for me i always enjoy kind of tracing the the history through that well that's the thing we talk about with uh unblast silence where we were talking about film noir and how film noir was this thing that was created in America, the 30s and 40s. And there are those that will tell you, well, the last great film noir in the classical sense was Touch of Evil, which was in the late 50s. And then anything after that is recontextualized through, as you were saying, the new wave. That becomes recontextualized again when you see things such as Bonnie and Clyde, when you see – when we go forward into things like Reservoir Dogs. So here you have an American form being informed by a French form informing an American form again. We can even take a step back from film noir if you want and say, okay, well, that was very much Weimar cinema that was going on. That was the expressionism of like a cabinet of Dr. Caligari and the painted sets and all this working its way into this chiaroscuro lighting of uh, what was happening with film noir. I mean, we've got 
Edgar Almer, another person that we'll be talking about in November when we do our Noir November. And, you know, he's coming from the German school, going into making the Black Cat, which has this gothic horror element, and then moving into doing stuff like Detour, which is hailed as one of the biggest, you know, the most influential film noir that has ever happened. So it's like, where does it all start? Where does it all come from? And then it, you can trace all that stuff back to art and other mediums. And so it's fun, so much fun to to put all this stuff into context and to see how then this generation, how did King of Marvin Gardens and Last Picture Show and Five Easy Pieces, Easy Rider, how did that then move on to other things? It's so much fun to see how that snowball, you know, turned into something else. And I would say that if you really want a good idea of, of all of that in terms of this era is, um, and I've talked about it several times on the show, and I know there's some people that have problems with the book, but I think overall it's, it's quite good, is Easy Riders Raging Bulls by Peter Biscayne. If you have a chance, pick that up and read it. And it'll give you an idea of this whole flavor of 70s film, basically from the late 60s to the early 80s, and how the, the big blockbuster post-Jaws and post-Star Wars kind of um, blew apart <laughs> what was going on in that kind of 12 to 15 year period of of new hollywood in the 70s so it, it's a really good book it's really interesting about this whole period and i definitely think it's worth your time like this box set is yeah i'm i'm still grateful for you um loaning me the box set so i could see the version of head that was on there because i had seen um a standalone one that was released so it was good to see how this one compared and you know what the extras were on for that and everything so that was I, God, that was back when uh you loaned me that, right? That was like way back when we first kind of uh, started hanging out. Yeah, it was. I think right after, um, right after I interviewed you about the uh, Impossible Funky book, the Cashier's to Cinemark Collection, a few years ago. Yeah, before I came on the show. So that all cycles too. It's crazy. Oh, everything's eating its tail. Whoa. The other thing that I would say also that's interesting about this box in terms of Nicholson's performance because you have. Uh, three of them. Uh, he's not in Drive, he said. He just directs it. But um, you were talking about how King of Marvin Gardens, he is he's not quite the Jack Nicholson we've come to know yet. I think actually we see the Jack Nicholson that we would come to know first in Easy Rider. He has a small part, but he's kind of that crazy, laughing, big smiling guy. And then I would say we see a sort of dour, cynical, biting version of the Nicholson that we've all come to love and know in Five Easy Pieces. Yeah, and I think that kind of all comes together a few years later in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, but yeah, up until that point, and even a little bit after, he's not this kind of gnashing of teeth. And, and granted, I love One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It is one of my favorite films, and it, it's a, a one that I return to. But I think that's kind of where he started to, later on, he would kind of almost parody that role. But even right afterwards with um, The King of Marvin Gardens, he goes on to The Last Detail, to Chinatown, to The Passenger, where it's just like... You know, these really, he's just knocking them out of the park over and over and over again. And it's really, he only starts to stumble after uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I don't know if you've ever seen The Missouri Breaks. That is um, a very interesting film. 
No, I've never seen it. It's um, it's something. <laughs> it's, I don't know what it is, but it's something. It's Nicholson and Brando, and it's this kind of uh, uh, neo western thing. And um, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I've I've watched it um, twice so far, and I kind of want to go back and watch it a few more times to see if I can kind of make heads or tails out of it. You can't really get a better cast. I mean, like I said, you've got Brando Nicholson, Randy Quaid, who is in The Last Detail with him, Frederick Forrest, who we know and love from so many other things, Harry Dean Stanton, come on, uh, John P. Ryan, again, who was in King of Marvin Gardens. So it's just like all of these great actors in here, and it's just this really kind of out there movie. And it's one of those where I can't say that it's bad or not. I just I don't necessarily know how to figure it out yet. So it's uh, one of those things uh, for further study, I suppose. I have, over the last several months since I got to Aspen, come to realize that there are like local sections in the library. And there is a section on the DVD shelves in the Pitkin County Library that is all Bob Rafelson films. And I went through there over the last several months and was, you know, getting some out. So I saw Stay Hungry, which is uh, Arnold's first role outside of Hercules in New York. And he's quite good in that. That's uh, AKA Hercules Goes Bananas. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he's quite good in that. He plays, of all things, a weightlifter in a, in a gym in the South with uh, Jeff Bridges and a very young Robert Englund. About 10 years, uh, almost 10 years before Freddy Krueger. That one's quite good. I liked um, Stay Hungry. I also, talking about Rafelson and Nicholson again, Postman Always Rings Twice, the uh, the remake that he made, I think, in, what was it, 80, 82, something like that, early 80s. Yeah, that sounds right. And then with Jessica Lang, And then also got out of the um, library, which I think is relatively uh, underappreciated film, is um, Blood and Wine with uh, Nicholson and Jennifer Lopez before she blew up. And um, I know you don't like him that much, but Stephen Dorff. Oh, yeah, Stephen Dorff. I mean, he was great in Blade. And I have problems with him in other things. But, yeah, he, he kind of reminds me a little bit of Peter Skarsgård, where it's like if he shows up, you know he's going to be a douche. It's just a matter of the degrees of douchiness for him. Yeah, this one's kind of interesting. It, it it has sort of a noir element to it, and there's a whole kind of intrigue about selling wine. Yeah, it sounds like probably something that I should check out, especially since the two wine episodes of Columbo are my favorite episodes. <laughs> so, Rob, yeah. how was Man Trouble? Did you check that one out? Man Trouble? Man Trouble, I believe that Ellen Burstyn was in that, and it's something to do with dog training. <laughs> I've never heard of it. Ellen Burson and Jack Nicholson, a sleazy but affable guard dog trainer, is blackmailed to steal a manuscript for a tell-all book uh, from one of his clients. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. Going to have to check it out now. Get over to the library. Get over to the library. Check it out. <laughs> Get some more ammo. So Exactly. Yeah, so is there anything you want to add about uh, Rafelson or New Hollywood or King of Marvin Gardens, sir? No, I think it's uh, King of Marvin Gardens is definitely one of those films that, for me, flew under the radar. And I'm glad that it didn't fly under yours because it definitely um, was a very interesting film and really was something that I had not experienced before. So I was glad to check it out. 
All right. Well, I hope you check it out, too. And, uh, of course, let us know what you think. So we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Tonight, I would like to ask a common question. Why are we enemies of the Jew? The Jew is both the cause and the beneficiary of our slavery. If we ignore our destiny, he will triumph over us and our future. The Jew thrives in filth and garbage. He spreads disease. He steals our possessions and lusts after our women. He pretends to be a friend of his victim, and before the unfortunate one knows it, his neck is broken. We are Jew haters because we are proud to be Aryans. It isn't true that we eat a Jew with every breakfast, but it is true that the Jew is slowly eating away at our future. And that is going to change as surely as world supremacy is the birthright of the Aryan race. This has been Howard W. Campbell Jr. Heil Hitler. Your government will never acknowledge your role as an agent. You come looking for a pardon, they'll deny they ever heard of you. Well, how many people did know what I was really doing? There were three of us. The third, I'm sorry to say, is dead. Why doesn't the government come forward and say this man you're spitting on is a hero? Your role will remain classified, and Uncle Sam's official position is that you're the scum of the earth. What are you thinking? I'm a Nazi? I wasn't a Nazi. (laughs) Take a good look at your crowd and friends, because you're next. Even if you weren't a spy, you could never have served the enemy as well as you served us. All the ideals that make me proud of being a Nazi, they came not from Hitler, but from you. God damn you! You're a dead liar! Just be careful what you pretend to be, because in the end, you are what you pretend to be. That's right, we're back next week with a show about Mother Night, the Keith Gordon film, which was adapted from the Kurt Vonnegut novel of the same name. We'll be joined by Keith Gordon for the entire show as we dive into that and the other works of Kurt Vonnegut, the history around Lord Haw Haw, as well as talking to the screenwriter of Mother Night, Bob Whitey. So thanks again to Ellen Burson for coming on the show. We'll have links posted on our site at projection booth dot com where you can learn more about the film and you can leave us feedback on this episode or listen to anything else from our archives and of course we want to share the love and give us a review and a rating over on itunes or stitcher and let folks know through your social media channels or smoke signals or any other way that uh, you go about communicating with the world so mr mike i think it's about time we hit the boardwalk The ships that go sailing somewhere beyond the sea. She's there watching for me. If I could fly like birds, I 